Chapter Seven of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seven. Funny what panic will do to a person. As I stood there on the dark porch, holding the knotted handkerchief, I had the feeling that I was whirling around in continuously widening circles. Then, when I finally reached the car and told the others. It seemed to me that the one logical thing to do was to race the car around in continuously widening circles, too. It was as if I expected one of those whirling circles to include Julia May, to catch her up as by the sheer mechanical covering of space. But the other two, Dick and Harry, did not have the personal interest to throw them into panic. Though my incoherently coherent story did make them look drawn and pale, they began to think with reasonableness. So without a word to me, Dick turned his car along the road that led, I knew instinctively, to the glass plant. It was a thousand to one chance that they had hidden her there. Foggy hope, but we plowed toward it. And it was a false lead. The glass plant was wrapped in darkness and quiet. The planks that had covered the window, that was once used for entrance and exit, were now carelessly loose. Our flash revealed a floor swept clean of the fake dust and of any possible footprints. We entered the building, rushed down the corridor and up the stairs, and came to the office that had long since been stripped of the broadcasting apparatus. And though we pounded on the walls and called at the top of our voices and shot the beam of our flashlight into every least corner of the place, we found no sign of anyone. Certainly Julia May was not there, nor was there any indication that anyone had been there since the removal of the apparatus. Despair caked my heart in ice. I wanted to sit down and cry undoubtedly an effective and manly way to solve any problem. So in the mad urge to do something physical, I walked to the boarded glassless window and with one fierce energy-releasing punch knocked loose a plank. It swung out, held in place by two loose nails at the top, but it swung far enough to give me a view of the ground close to the building. We had been standing, our search completely stalled, with darkness all around us. There had been no need for our using the flash, since one can think or feel desolate and beaten in the dark, as well as in the light. So when I struck the plank outward, it made a sharp noise, but released no light from within, and I could see without being seen. Below me in the darkness I saw a moving figure. With the instinctive response to a sudden noise, he looked up. He did not duck, as he might have done had the noise been followed by a burst of light. With a single sweep of my arm, I caught the flash out of Dick's hand and pointed it directly on the upturned face. For a second he stood in the cold, bright circle of light, and then he threw his arm up over his face and disappeared into the shadows. "'What's the matter?' burst from both my companions at once. But I stood rummaging in every corner of my memory for that face. I knew it. I'd seen it. Different. But so much the same." I told Dick and Harry what I had seen. With one of his terrific bursts of energy, Dick tore away the planks that remained across the window and dropped to the ground, beneath, where I could hear him scurrying about the tall weeds like a terrier rooting out a rabbit. His movements faded away, and then he called to us, this time in surprised fury. Harry and I hit the ground in quick succession and dashed across the field to our car. There it stood resting solidly on the rims of four deflated tires. Someone, and someone who knew his way around cars, had done this quickly and with complete effectiveness. And the pump, Dick discovered, had been broken. 
Even as I stood there fuming internally, I remembered where I'd seen that vaguely familiar face. This was a younger man, no doubt of that, but still the face was the same in features and general contour as the face of the ancient who presided over the ghost town's filling station. I told Dick and Harry, and they looked their bewilderment, almost disbelief. But, protested Dick, there's no other place around here where we could go for help except to that station. Wouldn't he be the biggest of fools to do a thing like that, knowing we'd have to come to him, and knowing that we'd feel the way we do? It just sounds like bad business. I didn't say this man was the filling station man. I said it was someone who looked like him, much younger, a cousin maybe, a nephew, a son. Anyhow, he'd not reckoned, whoever he is, on my flashing the light into his face, and if he had got away unnoticed, what difference would it make that later our need for help forced us to seek him at his station? Dick was elected to stay with his car. Harry and I tramped the relatively short distance to the station, a distance made long, not by mileage, but by growing anxiety. Whoever was in back of all this, the vision in the darkness seemed only some pitifully secondary figure in the drama, was doing everything possible to hold up our activity. And all the while they were holding Julia May, and my heart, tighter than I cared to admit. The antiquated filling station looked as dead as the ghost town itself. The pounding of my fist awoke only echoes. The station, sentinel by the two red-coated pumps, was a two-story frame structure, and whoever lived in it occupied the second story. So I directed impolite and insistent yells at the upper windows. Then the two of us flung handfuls of earth and gravel at them. Finally we got results. I turned my flash full on the face that appeared. Yes, undoubtedly there were points of similarity between this face and the face I'd so recently spotted near the plant. But this face was more wrinkled, much more the museum piece. He growled at us, and we growled back. However, he grudgingly agreed to come down, and he did so after a long delay. He found us a hand pump that must have come as a prize with the first pneumatic tire. Suddenly I shot out at him. I saw your son tonight. He looked at me through eyes over which nature or practice had dropped a film of gelatine. Ain't got no son he replied. Or your nephew, I countered, nodding my head understandingly. Nor no nephew, he retorted, and bring back that pump when you get through. It'll be two dollars for the use. I moved the plunger up and down two or three times experimentally. It was, as I had suspected, a nice large leak in the rubber hose. Of course, it might have been due to the age of the pump, but I didn't think so. I'll use your phone, said I, while you're putting a new tube on this pump. Ain't got no phone, he said, in what was evidently his favorite formula. But Harry gave him no time to say, ain't got no tube. Miraculously, he pulled a tube out of the junk box beside the door. Maybe it wasn't such a miracle. The tube might have gone into the box not too long before we appeared. And we were on our way, I wishing that I could have phoned to Paris Green and Shorty. For all of a sudden I felt very humble. The whole problem had grown much too big and torturous for me. Expert help was what I needed, even if it meant spilling the whole business to the FBI men and taking my chances with what they'd think about me. The sun was making a reluctant appearance, apparently as unwilling to start the day as the rest of us were, when we pulled slowly past Julia May's house. I didn't need to pause. Julia May wasn't there, 
for her bedroom window was shut tight. She, healthy kid that she was, would have died rather than sleep in a bedroom whose windows were closed. I sent Dick and Harry ahead to order breakfast at the shop, while I stopped for Father Brady's six o'clock mass. Over bacon and eggs and numerous cups of hot coffee, which we swallowed with real exercise of willpower, we laid all the cards on the table, and I told them for the first time the details they didn't know. My first visit to the lab on that awful night, my taking of the eyepiece, my substituting of the paper in the envelope, and all the other stupid things I'd done just because I'd thought I was such a smart guy. But in my eagerness to make a clean breast of the whole business, I forgot to mention the two bright objects I'd found, one of which had disappeared, and the other of which had been transferred to the pocket of a pair of clean pajamas. Harry voiced their united opinion. I'm calling Paris Green, he said. Let's meet him in your lab at noon. In the meantime, for the love of heaven, go back and get a shower, a shave, and a few winks. I'd be ready to call you guilty now just by looking at you. We separated at the door of the shop. As I swung across the campus, if the weary amble which I mustered could be complimented by the term swinging, I heard a rush of air behind me, and Morin's car drew up, in such a fashion as if to head me off. The chauffeur jumped out and flung open the door of the tunnel, and Morin himself leaned out. "'Prentice,' he said, "'would you mind riding with me for a bit? I want to talk to you.' "'What was there for me to do?' I was just about to step into the car, when a hand touched my arm. I felt a shock, as of a man suddenly invited by his rival gangsters to take a ride, and I turned to look into the cynical face of Sidney Weiss. Ignoring Morin, though all the time I felt that Weiss intended the dramatic interlude for him, he thrust a copy of the rock ledger into my hand. "'Read as you ride,' he said. "'Sometimes I print editorial opinion. Sometimes I print news, which is, after all, history. Today I print prophecy.' and he stirred down the street. I climbed in beside Morin. The chauffeur took his place behind the wheel. The car moved away from the curb, and for the first time I looked at Morin with more than a casual glance. If ever I saw a sick man, it was this fellow, whom I had always regarded as a great hero, and whom I now regarded, on the silly evidence of a bit of milkweed, as I don't know what. But his grey, ghost-haunted, tight-lipped face somehow knocked my suspicions into nothing. Here was no acting. Here was a man sick with worry, grim and gray, as I felt myself to be. He took the paper out of my hand and opened it on my knee. But I beat him to the verbal punch. I was full of my own worries. They, and I didn't have to explain the pronoun, kidnapped Julia May last night. She has the eyepiece. For a moment I thought he had not heard. Then the very slight twitch of his mouth told me that he had been listening, but not closely enough to divert his attention from the headline that stretched in a banner of gloom and foreboding all across page one. Mass flight of fifteen planes to take the air, and under this in letters hardly smaller certainly is stark, campus wonders which will come down and how. I'm sorry, said Morin. He was clearly reaching sympathy to me through the barbed barrier of that headline, she won't be hurt. I'm sure of that. It'll be best for them if she's not hurt, I cried, knowing as I spoke that my threat was a feeble thing, and that I was speaking only to ease my anxiety. Morin's long index finger was resting on the headline. Campus wonders, he read aloud, 
and, oh, bon Dieu, how I wonder, too. Then he poured it out to me, poured it out with all the wrung agony of someone who had to talk to someone, anyone. They've got to fly, he cried, if they are to learn to defend their land against what I saw in France, and if when that inhumane enemy comes, that sky, his fingers left the headline to point toward the horizon, can't be black with the vultures like another sky I saw, with nothing of eagles to meet them. They've got to fly, and yet... He turned to me suddenly, and there was in his voice a low, tortured appeal that I found hard to resist. Oh, I know that the whole thing ties in with some ugly chain. The lads who crashed, the bomb sight that was almost stolen, the old professor's death, and now this, this disappearance of Julia May. It seemed stranger for this dignified man to use her first name, except that he was echoing my utterance of it. His hand gripped my knee. What do you know about all this? What do you know that you are not telling? Shall I let those boys go up tomorrow? What information have you that you are keeping secret? I was on the point of telling him everything I knew, little as that was. But some impulse held me back. Something like a hand seemed to grip my windpipe and choke back my speech. It was another impulse, utterly contradictory to what I wanted to say, that made me answer him with these two amazing sentences. Let them fly tomorrow. And then, can you come to my laboratory today at exactly noon? He nodded, asked me where I wanted to go, leaned forward and instructed the chauffeur, and sat back, submerged in silence. I followed his departing car with an anxiety I could not analyze. I went home and tried to get rid of everything in the rush of water over my body, the keenness of a fresh blade against my chin, and the vain effort to trick sleep into laying me low before my alarm clock announced eleven-thirty. Old Charlie's door was ajar as I passed his room on my way to my small lab. I heard the old fellow tinkering around, and from his room came the sound of a recorded waltz. Tales from the Vienna Woods, I think it was. I entered my lab and had just about thrown the chairs into place, when Dick and Harry arrived with Paris Green and Shorty. The FBI lads looked about as interested as a couple of tomcats come to a dog show. But I had long since learned that these scions of the government regarded interest as a vice. Almost on their heels, Morin entered. I had to walk over, he said. I'm afraid I'm late. My car was out of order. I can't understand. But if I'm on time... We nodded, and he sat down. Well said Paris, lifting one skeptical eyebrow, and leaving it suspended near his hairline. So without prelude, I told them as much of the story as I knew, once more. Why is it that we fail to remember an essential detail, when we have rehearsed our narrative so carefully, forgetting about the two bright objects? I told the story in reverse. My discovery that Julia May was gone, the knotted handkerchief and its unspoken message to me, my conviction that the old fellow at the gas station, or a young relative of his, had no good business about the glass plant. Then I told how we found the broadcasting station, and I brought in the odd fact that we'd seen Mitzi Eisenberg's car along that particular road on that evening, and that the car had disappeared rather strangely. "'Any other car?' asked Paris, swiftly touching a tender point. "'Monsieur Morin's,' I said, for there was nothing else I could say." Morin appeared not to hear, and I went on to tell about Harry's finding the milkweed stuck in the bumper of Mitzi's car. And any other car? Again interrupted Paris, who was evidently using a crystal that we couldn't see. Yes, 
I answered reluctantly, Monsieur Morin's. This time Morin heard right enough, and on his drawn and haggard face was a slight flush of color. All this time the recorded music was coming from old Charlie's room, making an incongruously gay background for my quasi-confession, quasi-accusation. Each time I paused, the music seemed to swell. When I talked, it seemed to fade out. Then abruptly it ended altogether, and I heard a single sharp whine of static. Then silence. Strange how one hears unimportant trifles, even when one is deep in something that absorbs one and calls for concentration. For I was now with my own personal story, and it wasn't easy to tell all the things I'd held out, not with Paris swaying back and forth on an uncomfortable chair that he balanced at an acrobat angle, and Shorty seeing me through apparently closed eyes that seemed to sleep and not sleep under the brow of his soft hat, and to see everything. At long last I finished, just as the clock in Grey Memorial Chapel struck twelve-thirty. The silence around us was thick, oppressive, and like the sound of the knocking at the gate in Macbeth came a sharp double rap at the door. Paris stood up ignoring the knock, his eyes not on me this time, but on Morin. Monsieur Morin, he said, I'm afraid that I shall have to arrest you for the— The door was suddenly thrown open without the courtesy of further knocking. Charlie stood framed in the doorway, the light from the window beat full onto his face, which was upturned to regard us. Behind him was the shadowy darkness of the corridor. Well, shot Paris, regarding this interruption with irritated distaste. Gentlemen, Charlie began. Here I discontinue any effort to reproduce his sounds. His accent strangely resembled the thick utterances of old short circuit. Excitement had always thrown both of them into a scramble of bad English. If you will come to my little room for just a minute. We're busy, said Paris rudely but Charlie simply lifted his hand, this time commandingly. I think, he said, that you will be glad to listen to the voice of the man you are all looking for. All I remember of the next thirty seconds is a scramble of men racing the short distance between my laboratory and the room where Charlie led his mysterious, and to us, uncharted life. I know that as we entered his room, I had the quick realization that the radio— housing in its old-fashioned case a mechanism evidently identical with that made by old Short Circuit, for the two of us, was still turned on, though now no sound came from it. Gentlemen, began Charlie again, lapsing from his brief command into charming politeness, if you will wait just a minute. And then across the airwaves, coming from somewhere that I couldn't even hope to guess, sounded clear and sinister the voice that I had heard on previous momentous occasions, the voice that now made our spines creep. It was a guttural voice with a foreign accent. It was obviously disguised. The message it brought was plain as a pikestaff, whatever that may be. The man who just summoned you, the voice said, is in no way connected with what I am going to tell you, so put your suspicions about him out of your extraordinarily obtuse minds. The speaker paused, as if he wanted the satisfaction of letting that purposeless insult sink in. Then, Prentice, I am talking to you, but what I'm about to say to you is warning to the rest of you. We wanted that eyepiece, and we got it. We thought we had the bomb site too. Again a pause to let those facts sink in. Morin laughed in nervous relief. It's secure in Dean Rothen's safe, he whispered as if afraid that the radio speaker might hear. Is it? 
retorted Paris Green in the same hushed voice. It was stolen from the dean's office two nights ago. In a flash, I thought happily of the real bomb site, hidden securely under the rubbish here in Charlie's room, and almost close enough for any one of us to reach out and touch it. The voice resumed. We have a young lady who is very dear to one of you, the one who seems to know most about this business. That simplifies matters for us. If you take one step to trace her, she will disappear forever, and you know that human life means little to us in the cause we serve. It may take you some time to get the bomb site, so I am giving you until tonight. If you decide to deliver the bomb site to us, his voice rang with sudden authority, flashed the light in Prentice's laboratory at exactly ten o'clock, once on, once off, a pause, once, once off, and this time leave it off. You will then receive instructions via this radio on where to deliver the bomb site. After you have delivered the site, you will find the young lady at home, and as safe as she is now. Then, in almost satiric parody on the police calls, the speaker said, That is all. Paris Green broke the dead silence that had settled on the room. There are about a dozen questions that I still can't answer. How, first of all, he faced Charlie with an accusing frown, do you happen to have a radio that can receive messages that none of the rest of us can get? Because, said the old man simply, without strutting, when I made the first one for my cousin, the professor, and he and Tom Prentice duplicated it, I naturally enough made one for myself. I looked at Charlie with sudden admiration. So the radio wasn't old short circuit's invention at all, but the invention of this janitor. Well, said the deflated Paris, and again, well. Then he coughed unnecessarily and launched his second torpedo. Who in this gang here has any idea where the lost bomb site is resting? All of us except Charlie looked blank. I deceitfully, the others from ignorance. But old Charlie hobbled across the room, lifted the rubbish which I had seen piled above the broken bomb site, and stood back. Only this time it was my turn to look blank. What we saw wasn't the broken, smashed, wrecked instrument I had seen in the professor's lab on the night of the murder, and later in Charlie's closet. It was the reconstructed bomb site, perfect to the last detail. There are moments when speech is surely unnecessary. We pay to this revelation the tribute of our silent admiration. Paris, for once in his life, a little embarrassed, turned to Morin. Sorry, he said. I overlooked too many facts, but I still... Morin sank into a chair and buried his face in his hands. Don't, he said, don't. There is agony in his voice. Tomorrow is the day for the mass flight. Who knows what they will do, and how far is it my fault? I turned away from the anguish of the man. As I did, a completely perfect plan, intricate but simple, seemed to blueprint itself in my brain. Dick, Harry, I cried for I remembered the signal from the window on the night of the murder, and the answering signal from the wings of a low-flying plane. Maybe we could do it, and if we could. Dick and Harry tumbled from the room after me and into my lab. I drew the curtain aside and measured, as accurately as I could from memory, the location of that plane on the fatal night, and then the direction in which it had turned before the lights on the plane disappeared. For a few minutes I talked very fast and Dick made mental calculations that involved that crazy car of his. Then he nodded reassuringly. 
If it's not too far, I think I can do it, he announced. We sauntered back to Charlie's room, where the others were still standing in a kind of daze. Gentlemen, I said, we're going to give the signal. Then we're going to leave Charlie here. I put my hand affectionately on the old fellow's shoulder, while some of us attend to some very important business. But what about tomorrow's flight? Morin's voice was still raw and tortured. You start the flight on schedule, I announced. But don't worry. I think that before the flight, we'll have our man. End of chapter 7